Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. We at UCLA Extension wish our listeners a most pleasant and family-centered holiday season. This podcast is likely part one of our year-end review for 2022. But before we move to the podcast, I want to mention that UCLA and most other universities operate with limited staffing the last two weeks of the year. Nevertheless, we will plan to release part two around December 19th, and we'll offer more thoughts and details relating to the subjects that we're introducing for summary in this podcast. In other words, more detail on the housing, the unemployment numbers, and inflation will be contained in part two. That being said, for UCLA, our enrollment systems operate 24 by 7 throughout the holidays, including New Year's Day. As you reflect on the year past and think about both career and personal growth, think of us as your support system. We offer close to 5,000 classes a year, both online and in our physical classrooms. In our business, economics, finance, accounting, and leadership courses, we have seasoned practitioners who generously teach our students and help them network for continuous professional, as well as importantly, income and lifestyle growth. As important access as information access is the great divider between those who excel and those who just get by, pretty much in any profession, I often think of my own four-word slogan, learn more, earn more. There's a lot of truth in those words in my experience. Today's podcast, again, offers you information and perspectives that are crucial to consider in planning your own financial and educational futures. But again, we focus on key data not well covered, if covered at all, by the so-called news organizations and related media. Let's start with the Russia-Ukraine war, and then we'll navigate through some significant findings on disturbing mischaracterizations of U.S. economic health. And we'll summarize where we see the stock and bond markets headed for 2023. Again, as a reminder, we will offer more details in part two in our next podcast. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is a catastrophe for the Ukrainian people and unfortunately seems no closer to ending. In fact, over the second half of this year, Russia has made substantial commitments to continue it. Some of these commitments are not in the mainstream press. For example, one of their plans, which is costing them many tens of billions of dollars, includes building their own oil tanker fleet. As this year ends, Russia will have purchased, leased, or otherwise acquired or controlled well over 100 medium-sized and large-sized oil tankers. They appear to continuously be involved in actually doubling the size of this fleet in 2023 placing them in a position to largely evade the sanctions placed on them by the U.S. and European Union. I might say these tankers are old by industry standards. They are, importantly, generally 10 to 15 years old and needing a lot of ongoing maintenance, but they will carry enough crude oil to non 
participating countries, importantly China and India, to allow Russia to come within a million barrels a day or so of their 2021 export levels. This still leaves a million barrels a day being withheld from the global market that in total exceeds 88 million barrels per day. However, as China reopens from their latest COVID round, global oil demand can be expected to snap back to the 2019 global level of approximately 95 million barrels a day. And that is going to create many new supply and pricing issues. More on this later, but for now, their recent investment, that is Russia's recent investment in a global oil tanker fleet intended to bypass sanctions as well as Western world insurance requirements, indicates to me they're in the Ukraine for the long term, or at least until they lose the war. Losing the war carries a whole new set of risks that few want to think about, including the replacement of Putin by hardline leaders who would escalate the war into new European fronts. Yes, it could get much worse than now, and much worse than many can imagine. I'm not a Putin fan by any means, but increasing instability in Russia could create or could generate a much worse leadership scenario. I do get sporadic reports, albeit secondhand, but reporting many shortages of essentials in Russia, including machinery and auto parts, in addition to food and clothing basics. The winters in Russia are known for their harshness and the country's rapidly declining natural gas and oil revenues, in addition to trade sanctions, are having an impact. Back to the U.S. Here's where we're headed today. Our federal government reporting agencies are doing their best to present a healthy growing economy, but it's not working. We are in a recession, in my view, and it promises to get much worse throughout 2023. In past podcasts, we've discussed the overestimates of employment in the data releases and the underestimates of inflation. I'll give you more specific data supporting these misunderstandings and even misrepresentations shortly and even more detail the week of December 19th in Part 2. The single-family housing market on a national basis is in freefall. A major housing recession is in the cards for 2023, given the doubling of mortgage rates this year and the much higher mortgage qualification requirements. We're seeing some historically negative trends month to month, and we'll highlight them. There's no sign of these trends improving. As we've said before, the Fed has to see the emergence of a severe recession, and they are beginning to suspect this vision will solidify during the first quarter of 2023, if not later this month. Some really bad economic indicators are emerging, and I'll also highlight them today and in part two. The bond and stock markets continue to have elevated risks with another strong down move, and I mean 10, 20%, or more than 20%, becoming more and more likely. Protect and preserve your investments and retirement funds. Now is not the time to call a bottom in these markets and resume any aggressive investment plans. Give this negative scenario some respect. Give it another month or two, or possibly three, and you'll see, in my view. Now let's discuss some important data as well as some history lessons. The U.S. Federal Reserve continues to grapple with inflation, which at 7.7%, which is the October CPI, being more than triple the Fed's 2% target. The Fed has two options, 
when it comes to interest rate increases designed to tackle the highest U.S. inflation since the early 1980s. The first is it continues to hike rates beyond what the economy can handle, causing a severe recession, usually defined as two consecutive quarters of negative growth. This is the Volcker Fed playbook. Volcker is widely credited with curbing inflation, but in doing so, he's also criticized for causing the 1980, the 81, and 82 recession. The way he did it was the same as the current U.S. Federal Reserve is fighting inflation, raising the federal funds rate. From an average of 11.2% in 1979, Volcker and his Federal Reserve Board had a series of rate hikes and increased the federal funds rate from 11.2 to 20% in June of 1981. This led to a rise in the prime rate up to 21.5%, which was the tipping point for a really severe recession that followed. Forty years later, the Federal Reserve faces a similar issue. And like Paul Volcker's Fed, interest rate hikes are seen as the solution to bringing inflation back in line. And that is through demand destruction. Raising the cost of borrowing for businesses and individuals in a world that runs on credit is considered the best way to kill demand. For the past four Federal Open Market Committee meetings, the committee has raked hikes 75 basis points each, bringing the benchmark rate to the current three and three quarters to four percent range. But the messages coming from the top Fed officials indicate a change of direction in the works. Markets are now pricing in a 50 basis point move for the December meeting, which is a little bit more than a week away. The first thing to understand is the Fed's concept of inflation is different from both the official statistic and the reality in the economy. The Consumer Price Index, which is currently 7.7%, is the number most quoted. It's the so-called official inflation rate. But the Fed, when it talks about inflation, has for the past 10 years referred to the personal consumption expenditures, the PCE price index. The Fed's preferred inflation index is core PCE, which excludes food and energy prices, supposedly because they're too volatile. But the fact that the two most essential price categories are left out means that Fed is downplaying inflation. The consumer price index was up 7.7 in October, as just mentioned, the lowest reading since January, but the PCE only showed a 6.2% increase in September, which was the same as August. And this can get a little bit confusing. Which inflation index best captures the amount that prices are truly rising? Well, conceptually, they measure different things. The CPI aims to capture out-of-pocket spending by Americans. Therefore, it places a high weighting on rent and cars, for example. The index is based on about 94,000 price quotes collected monthly from 23,000 retail and service establishments, as well as 43,000 rental housing units. Of the two CPI indices, released monthly by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the most important is the Consumer Price Index for All Urban Consumers. That represents 93% of the U.S. population. In contrast, the PCE tries to measure the cost of everything, whether households pay for them directly or not. The result is a significant difference in which costs are included in the weightings of those costs. In a recent Bloomberg article, it was pointed out the annual inflation, as measured by the CPI, has exceeded that of the PCE since the early 1980s. However, the unusually wide gap is poised to narrow in the months ahead, giving Federal Reserve officials more cover to pause interest rate increases in early 2023. How to explain this phenomenon? 
The best example is healthcare costs. Bloomberg stated, unlike the CPI, the PCE includes all healthcare spending, including spending by employers on behalf of workers, as well as taxpayer-funded programs like Medicare. As a result, healthcare makes up nearly a fifth of the core PCE, but is only 11% of the core CPI. And in the latest CPI report, the health insurance index has already started pulling down core inflation. The other big reason why core CPI is seen decelerating much quicker than core PCE in 2023 is because more generally the categories that will help drag down the CPI have smaller weightings in the PCE. Take housing. The so-called shelter category makes up about a third of the overall CPI, but about 40% of the core measure. This makes sense given housing tends to be households' single biggest monthly expense. The run-up in rental prices has filtered into the official government measures with a leg. Similarly, the rapid deterioration in the housing market seen over 2022 will also take time to be reflected in the figures, but when they do, the impact on the CPI will be pretty quick. The effect on the PCE, despite similar measurement, will be much smaller, given the housing components have roughly half the significance of the CPI. So what is all this saying? That some of the necessities, which include things like food, non-alcoholic beverages, fuels, clothing, housing, utilities, health care, health insurance, homeowners insurance, auto insurance, and phone, utility, and internet bills have a very different weighting in the CPI versus the PCE. Where does this lead? Well, we can note that among the most dramatic price increases, food at work and school rose 95% in the past year. Eggs were up 45%. Butter and margarine climbed 33%. Public transportation was 28% more expensive. So overall, the average American household is spending $433 more a month to buy the same goods and services it did a year ago. The pervasiveness of price pressures is problematic, and it will take two or three months of decreases for the Fed to consider pivoting to a more dovish position, which would mean first quarter of 2023. At that point, they may be discussing lowering interest rates. Any meaningful relief for household budgets, though, on the other hand, is still way over the horizon. Even though the broader CPI may fall in the next several months, food and energy costs have to continue to decline. But when I look at the energy crisis in Europe that we've discussed, the UK food prices and inflation numbers, the European Union inflation numbers in many countries running 15% or more, and OPEC's 2 million barrel a day production cut, which they agreed to continue just today, I have my doubts whether the food and energy costs will continue to decline. So the PCE is going to be stubborn. It's going to be stubbornly 6% or more. The CPI may decline in the first quarter of the year, but the Federal Reserve has indicated they're looking at the PCE. So this is all going to be levered, if I can say it that way, on what happens to energy prices in Europe. Historically high natural gas prices due to Russia's severe natural gas export cutbacks have forced shutdowns at energy-intensive businesses, including steel and chemicals. Governments are reportedly issuing more debt to shield households and businesses from pain, and there are projections the energy crisis will spiral Europe into a much more severe recession. 
There are several more trends that I'm just going to recognize, time being limited today, and we will cover in more depth in part two. Household savings rates have dropped back even below where they were before COVID, and household debt, particularly credit card debt, has gone straight up. It's close to a trillion dollars at this point. Spending power is an issue with households, which is a function of incomes, not for years, equating to the increases in the real inflation rates, which, as I've mentioned in many prior podcasts, or at least twice what is officially reported on the CPI. The inflation rates that are being passed through, as I mentioned, are resulting in $433 in additional spending to keep a year ago households level. The yield curve continues to invert, which is going to put more pressure on the adjustable mortgage rates. Most of Europe runs on adjustable mortgage rates. The yield curves week to week are inverting more, which is a stronger indication of recession, which impacts bank lending as banks pay short-term for deposits, but they lend long-term, and that creates liquidity problems. I think many of you have seen Blackstone, which is the largest stockholder of the U.S. markets in the world. They own about 10% of U.S. stocks. They have investment assets of $10 trillion or more. They have just recently put restrictions on redemptions in some of their real estate funds. That's an indication of the lack of liquidity. Banks are having the same issues. They pay their depositors short term, and so far the banks have not passed these higher rates onto the depositor. So depositors can get 4.5% on a two-year government note, but they can't get anywhere near 4.5% from the banks on a two-year CD. So the banks are going to be faced with having to compete for funds. And the fact that they have loaned money long at very low interest rates is an emerging issue. A major item which I want to spend time on developing in part two is the unemployment rate. And what I'm going to mention just now is that in the years prior to presidential elections, there has been a trend for the Bureau of Labor Statistics to actually make an assumption and it relates to the birth death rate of businesses. It relates to assuming hiring. It's not measuring the hiring, but largely 2.7 million jobs. It has been estimated to have appeared this year out of assumptions made by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and that is not at all verified by data. So I'm going to talk next time about a missing 2.7 million jobs, which changes the whole picture about whether the U.S. is operating in a healthy job-creating manner, which it is not. And this, unfortunately, this 2.7 million maybe fictional jobs that are a part of the reporting has a significant impact on media reporting of economic health. This is well worth going into a bit of detail, and we're going to do that. We just don't have time to do that today. I want to go more into the housing issues. Home buyer confidence is the lowest it's been in 40 years. Home buyer and home builder confidence is heading straight down with home buyer confidence at levels that we haven't seen in at least 40 years. More specifically, in the past month, nearly 60,000 home purchase agreements fell through, equal to 18% of homes that went under contract. Surging mortgage rates also caused would-be sellers to stay put due to the lock-in effect, mortgages they've already locked in. The average 30-year fixed mortgage was 6.9% in October, up 3.8 percentage points from the 3.07 one year earlier. 
This is the largest year-over-year -year increase in mortgage rates at any month since 1981. Prices are easing as listings linger on the market. Homes that sold in October were on the market for a meeting of 35 days, and that was up from 21 days a year earlier. And less than half of home offers, those written by Redfin, faced competitive offers, which is very different than six months to a year ago. With that, I wish you happy pre-holiday time with your families and look forward to covering in more depth some of these major issues in part two, the week of December 19th. Again, be cautious, be careful, and don't get caught up in a year-end stock rally. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.